We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. This is what the Lord Almighty, sorry, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Thanks, Anita. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do not just need words of human wisdom or human inspiration, but we need words from you. And so we ask that you would come and speak to us today. Speak to us in such a way that our lives would be changed. Meet us wherever we find ourselves in this room this morning, whether we're convinced of the things that we've been singing and praying or whether we're utterly unconvinced, whether we come bored or depressed or full of joy. God, we are, we desperately need to hear from you. And so we pray that you would speak to us today. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, we've been in a series for the last week, last three weeks, talking about our vision as a church. And what we've said is this, is that from the very beginning, our vision has been to be a church not just for ourselves. Uh, what does that mean? It means that we're a church. That's the first thing that it means. And we, we talked about this two weeks ago, and we said that church is not an event to attend, but it is a family to which we belong. It's a community of people who who love and care for one another, a community where every person feels known and cared for. And that's what we're striving to be as a church family. But we're also striving to be a diverse family. The church is not meant to be a family of people who all look the same and talk the same and dress the same because it is a group of people who are not bound. We're not bound together. I look around this room. We're not bound together by a common color. We're not bound together by a common class. We're not bound together by a common culture. We are bound together by a common Savior who loved us and who gave himself for us so that we might be in relationship with him and with one another. So we're a church, but we are a church, and this is so important, not just for ourselves. What does that mean? It means that we're seeking to be a church for the unconvinced, for those who do not yet believe. If you are here this morning and you do not identify as a Christian, I want you to hear me say, we are so glad that you are here. We are so glad that you are here. And maybe your experience or maybe your perception is that the church 
is not a safe place to ask your questions and to wrestle with your doubts, but what we're trying to create is something, is a church that's actually the best place to do that. Because belief is often a process. It does not happen overnight. You need time and you need a community. And our hope is to be a church where you can actually belong before you believe so that you can wrestle through your questions with others. We are a church not just for ourselves, but for the unconvinced and for the city. And that's what we're talking about today. From the very beginning, we have said we want to be a church in and for Oakland. That's actually why it is in our name. That's why the name of the city made its way into the name of our church. And I know that not everybody in this room lives in Oakland. Some of you, you live in Berkeley. Some of you live in San Leandro. Some of you come through the tunnel. Some of you drive across the Bay Bridge. You pay $7 every week to come to church. We are glad that you're here. What kind of jerk would I be if I was like, you're not welcome in this place and you're paying $7 to show up? We are glad. We are glad that you are here. But as a church, we are focusing our efforts, our money, our time, and our mission on Oakland. In fact, this is what we want to be known for in this city. The thing that we want to be known for is not this beautiful building that God has given to us. It's not the incredible worship music that you get to experience every Sunday from our worship director and our musicians. It's not our sermons. It's not our programs. The thing that we want to be known for in this city is the way that we love and serve the city. Can you imagine if there was a church in this city that had that kind of reputation? Can you imagine if the thing that outsiders said about our church was, I don't believe what those people believe, but there is nobody who loves this city like they do. Wouldn't you want to be a part of a church like that? Yes. And so would I. So how are we going to do that? Well, this text tells us, actually. It tells us that to be a church that loves a city means three things. And here's the first. It means that we are a church in the city. We're a people in the city. Now that might sound like a throwaway point because you think, what do you mean in the city? We already are in the city. Some of us live in the city. Our building is in the city. We're right in the middle of downtown. But this is not just talking about geographic location. To be in the city means much more than that. Let me give you the context of our passage today. Verse 4 tells us everything we need to know. Look at the text. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's what we know from history. Babylon was the dominant military power of the ancient Near East. And they had been on a conquering spree conquering land after land and people after people, and that included Israel. Around 586 B.C., they conquered Jerusalem. And rather than just killing everybody off, they decided, hey, why don't we bring some of them back to Babylon? So they traveled 500 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so now what you have is these Israelites who are living as exiles, 
They had gone from a place where everybody looked like them, talked like them, and believed what they believed to a place where everybody was different. Everything was different in every way. It was different morally, it was different culturally, and it was different spiritually. Now, what is your mentality if that happens to you? Your mentality is you stay on the margins. You stay on the margins of Babylon. You create your own little kind of ghettos of people who vote like you vote and who value what you value and who live like you live and who believe what you believe and you are constantly fantasizing about the day that God is going to get you out of there and take you home. See, physically you're in Babylon, but your heart is in Jerusalem. You're in the city, but you're not really in the city. It's kind of like Jonah. You know, God called Jonah to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah went, but you know how he went? He went holding his nose. Jonah hated the city. Jonah wanted to get out of the city. And this is actually how some of us live here. Some of us were not from here. And you came here because of a job, or because of school, or because of a relationship. And everything here is different. And you see, your, your heart, you're, you're here, you're here, but your heart is in SoCal. Or, I don't know, it's in Omaha, I don't know, wherever home is. And you are just counting down the days until you can move somewhere more familiar where you can buy a house, right? Or maybe you're from here. Maybe you're from here. Maybe, maybe this, is, this is home. And you are, you're just kind of fed up and frustrated with the way things are. There's a spirit of resentment and resignation towards the city that has taken place in your heart. And you see, whether you are new here or whether you have always lived here, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot do this. You have got to fight this. And let me, I want to point out two things from the text to you here, two things from this passage. First, look back at verse 4. This is really interesting. Uh, this is God talking to the exiles. And what does he say to them? He says, he says that he is the one who carried them into exile. He says, to all, lost my place here, where are we at? To all the exiles that I carried, uh, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's God talking. Now, this is interesting because on the one hand, why did Israel end up in exile. Well, if you, if you read more of the Old Testament, you see it's because they, they were actually diso, they were disobedient to God. God called them to be a light to the nations. He called them to care for the poor and to exercise justice and to do mercy, and they didn't. And so God exiled them. But on the other hand, God is saying it wasn't just their disobedience. God is saying he is the one who took them there. He took them there. See, you're here and it's not by accident. You're here because God brought you here. Whether you've always lived here or whether you're new. God brought you here. And he calls you to love this place as long as he has you here. 
And and not only that, but but look at this second. God says to these exiles in verse 5, he says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. God is saying, make this your home. Put down roots. Don't stay on the margins. Don't don't live separate from the city, but become part of the city, part of the fabric of the city. Engage in the social and the cultural and the political and the economic life of this place. God's call to his people has never been that we separate ourselves from the world. It has always been a call into the world. And do you know that this is what Jesus is praying for you right now, today, as he is at the right hand of the Father? The, 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 the book of Hebrews says that Jesus lives to intercede for us. He's praying for you right now. What is he praying for you? Have you ever thought about that? What is Jesus praying for you? John chapter 17, verse 18. Jesus, the night before his death, prayed this. Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He is praying that we would be in the world, in the city, in the place that we live. To be in the city is about much more than just living in the city. No, it is about loving the city. It is about the posture of our hearts towards this place. Do our hearts reflect God's heart? God loves Oakland. He loves this place. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he calls you to love it too. What does it mean to be a church that loves the city? It means to be a church that is in the city... But second, it means to be a church that is not of the city. In that same passage in John 17, Jesus prays, Father, my disciples are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but I ask that you would sanctify them. What does it mean to be sanctified? That's kind of a very churchy word. What does it mean? It it simply means this. It means to be different. It means to be set apart. It means to be distinct from the world around you. Now, Now look at this. Look at this in Jeremiah 29, our text for today. God says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. And so God is saying, look... Don't separate from the city. Be in the city. Love the city. But then look at what he says in the very next verse. He says, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. What does it mean that God wants them to increase and not decrease? It means that he does not want them to lose their distinct identity while they're living in Babylon. See, when you're in exile, you kind of forget about the culture that you came from the longer you live there. And God is saying, I don't want you to do that. I want you to be different. Different, he's saying to them, I want you to be different in your values, different in your priorities, different in every way from the Babylonians. And I think this is so interesting because some of us, we come from religious communities that say, you know what? Stay pure and separate from the big bad city. 
And then culture says, no, 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 come on in and adopt the values and the beliefs of the city. But you know what God says? God says, I want you to be in the city, but not of the city. I want you to love the city, but I want you to be different from the city. Now, what does that look like to live that out? And God actually tells us in the very next verse, verse 7. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. One way we live this out is by praying for the city. Let me ask you a question. And I've asked this question before, but it's almost worth asking every Sunday. If God answered every prayer that you prayed for this city this last week, what would be different? Would anything be better? And maybe you're thinking, no, because I haven't really prayed for the city. Well, I have good news for you. You have a wonderful opportunity to come do it tonight. It's 6 p.m. How about that for an infomercial? That's pretty good. I hope you'll come. But the second way we live this out is we live it out by seeking the peace and prosperity of the city. You know what the default of every human heart is? It is to seek peace and prosperity for ourselves. It's the default nature of every single human heart. You say, that's kind of harsh. Uh, I read an interview recently with Josh Whedon. He was the director for the Avengers movie. And in the interview, he said this. He said, I have no hope when I look at the world. My stories do have hope. If I wrote what I, what I really think, I would be sad all the time. So I write things where people will lay down their lives for each other. I don't see that in the world, so I create it. See, our default is to seek peace and prosperity for ourselves, but God says I want you to be different. I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of others and of the city before you seek your own. Now this, this phrase, peace and prosperity, it's actually one word in the Hebrew. And it, it might be the most important word in the whole Bible, if you could actually argue that there's a word that is more important than others. It's the word shalom. And it means total flourishing. Shalom is what Adam and Eve had in the garden. There was spiritual flourishing. The relationship with God was so intimate that they walked with him. There was economic flourishing. There was no poverty in the garden. People didn't miss meals in the garden. No, there was nobody who was sleeping in a tent in the garden. There was social flourishing. No hatred. No violence. No racism. No evil. No broken neighborhoods. And there was physical flourishing. There was no death or disease. And you see, shalom is the way the world was meant to be. It is what God intended for this world, but it is no longer the way the world is. And so God, here's what God is saying to these exiles in Babylon, and it's what he's saying to us. He is saying, listen, Christians need to move in to urban centers. And they need to love the city. And they need to pray for the city. And they need to care for the city. And they need to pour themselves out for the city so that we might 
be part of God's shalom and his healing in the city. And that's what it means to be in the city, but not of the city. We don't seek shalom for ourselves. We seek it for others. We seek it for the city. You know, I asked earlier if you could imagine, if you could imagine a church that was known for the way that it loved the city. Do do you know that this is what the early Christians were known for? Uh, Rodney Stark, who uh, he's a sociologist, um, he's taught at a number of universities. He actually does graduate studies at UC Berkeley. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he's done extensive research on the early church. He's, he's not, a, as far as I know, he does not identify as a Christian. But this is what he says in his book. I think we have this quote up here. It's kind of long, bear with it. In a world entirely lacking social services, The willingness of Christians to care for others was put on dramatic public display when two great plagues swept the empire, one beginning in 165 and the second in 251. Mortality rates climbed higher than 30%. Pagans tried to avoid all contact with the afflicted, often casting the still living into the gutters. Christians, on the other hand, nursed the sick even though some believers died doing so. Christian social services also were visible and valuable during the frequent natural and social disasters afflicting the Greco-Roman world. Earthquakes, famines, floods, riots, civil wars, and invasions. Christianity also offered a strong community in a disorganized, chaotic world. Greco-Roman cities were terribly overpopulated. Antioch, for example, had a population density of about 117 inhabitants per acre, more than three times that of New York City today. The smell of sweat, urine, feces, and decay permeated everything. It's kind of like Oakland. Outside on the street, outside on the street. I love this city, but it's got a smell to it. Outside on the street, mud. Open sewers and manure lay everywhere, and even human corpses were found in the gutters. Newcomers and strangers divided into many ethnic groups harbored bitter antagonism that often erupted into violent riots. For all these ills, Christianity offered a unifying subculture bridging these divisions. Now listen to this. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity and hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate fellowship. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. What were they known for? They were known for the way that they loved the city, for the way that they brought God's shalom to the city. I have what I call a 20-year hope for our church. My hope is that we become so engaged in this city with our neighbors and with the poor and with those who are oppressed and with those who are marginalized that we would live so beautifully and that we would love so deeply and that we would serve so sacrificially that if we were to suddenly have to shut our doors as a church one day, that people who are not a part of this community would say, this city is worse off without that church being here. And you see, the question is, is what is going to get us there? What's going to make us into that kind of church? That doesn't just happen. And let me tell you, it's actually very hard. It's not easy. 
It's not convenient. To be in the city but not of the city will come at tremendous cost. I mean, you heard people who have been here for 20 years this morning talking about the challenges that they have faced here. It will cost you money. It will cost you time. It will cost you comfort. It may even cost you safety and security. And truthfully, as somebody who's lived here almost 20 years, truthfully, I can say to you, living here can be hard. The brokenness can be overwhelming at times. You can be tempted to just want to get out. And you see, the question is, what is going to get us to love the city like this? And the answer comes in the third point. That we seek to be a church in the city, but not of the city, for the city. For the city. We are a church. We're seeking to be a church for the city. And I want to give you two things from this text as we close today that will enable us, that will shape us into a church that is for the city, even when it costs us. Here's the first. First, it's the promise of an eternal city. Did you know that the Bible begins in a garden, but it ends in a city? In Revelation chapter 21, we get a vision of heaven. And it is called the holy city. It's a city of shalom. It's a city of total flourishing. Uh, Isaiah chapter 65 talks about this eternal city. And I wanna, it says a couple things. Let me, let me just share with you. It says, no longer will they build houses and others live in them. That's amazing. That's saying in heaven, people are not going to be pushed out of neighborhoods because they can't afford them anymore. Listen to what else Isaiah 65 says. My chosen ones will enjoy the work of their labor. There's no more labor injustice in heaven. Nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. I mean, no more generational poverty. No more educational inequity. It is a city where all things are made new. No more inequity, no more injustice, no more poverty, no more violence, no more mourning, no more tears, no more death. And Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says this. It says that if you are a follower of Jesus, your citizenship right now is in heaven. In other words... Just like these Israelites were exiles, so are we. That's actually what 1 Peter 1 and James chapter 1 calls Christians. It says that we are exiles. We are living in a place that is not our home. Our home is not any earthly city, but it is in this eternal city to come. And you know what that means? It means that we are called to bring the presence of that city. I don't know why I'm pointing up there because it's not up there, but we're called to bring the presence of that city, that future eternal city that is coming into this city. Uh, I don't know if you saw, there was a video that went viral soon after uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And it was the video of a young Ukrainian woman 
who is playing a very, uh, she was sitting at a, this white grand piano and she's playing a very famous piece by Chopin. And, and gradually, it, it starts off just kind of zoomed in on her, but gradually the camera begins to pull back and you see that she is sitting amid the debris of her home. It had been wrecked by a Russian missile. And all around her are smashed doors and smashed windows and there's rubble all over the furniture and all over the floor. And literally, you see fires burning outside the, the open windows of her house. And you see, the rubble, it, 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 tells, it tells one story. It tells the story of ruin and devastation. But this song that she is playing in the middle of it tells another story. And it tells a story of hope and restoration. And this is a picture of the church. This is a picture of what we are called to be in this city amidst the brokenness of our city. We are called to be a community that is playing the notes of redemption and new creation and of God's promise to make all things new. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, he's supposed to say it up there, but it's not up there. He says, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Friends, when your heart is captured by this future eternal city that God has promised to bring, it will send you out into this city in ways that you could never imagine. That's what's going to make us a church for the city. Here's the second thing that's going to make us a church for the city. It's the degree to which we realize that we have a God who is for us. So we've talked a lot today about being a church for the city, but Christianity actually says we have a God who is for us. The Christian gospel tells the story of a God who became in exile, who willingly left his home to come to ours. And he didn't just move from one city to another, but he came from heaven to earth. And I want you to know that Christianity is the only world religion that says this. It is the only religion that says that God became a person, that he came all the way down, that he came all the way into the world, but he was not of the world. Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of someone who did not seek what was good for him, but he sought what was good for others. He served. He healed. He forgave. He loved. See, he was in the world, but he was not of the world because he was for the world. And you know what it cost him? I mean, it came at tremendous, it will come at tremendous cost for us, but it came at ultimate cost for him. It, it actually cost him shalom. You know, on the cross, Jesus experienced utter devastation. Economically, socially, physically. He died poor and penniless. He was the victim of injustice and violence. And he was abandoned by everyone who knew him. But the most devastating thing was spiritually. 
The book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, makes a point to tell us that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified outside of the city gates. And that is not a coincidence. It is actually the Bible's way of saying something deeply tragic happened on the cross, that Jesus Christ was exiled from the Father. And that because he was separated from God, we can now be with God. Because he bore our sins outside of the city, we now have the hope and the invitation of being a part of God's eternal city. And to the degree that you realize that God is so for you, that he would do all of this for you and because of you, you will become someone who is sent out into the city and who loves it and who gives yourself for it and who joins God's mission in healing it. And all of that actually starts right here at this table. It it does not start with sheer determination. It does not start with willpower. It does not start with you making promises to God and to yourself to do better and to try harder this week. Before you can participate with God's love for the city, you have to receive God's love for you. And that is what God offers to us at this table today. And I want you to know that if you've never received that love, if you've never tasted of it, if you've never known it, you can know it today. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread And after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise for this promise that we have at this table. The promise of your love, the promise of your welcome, and the promise of new creation. Would you help us to believe today as we come to this table that we are welcomed and received by you, not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that you have done in your life and in your death and in your resurrection. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.